When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians and the heritage community to get angry about all those things we get wrong. The podcast where myth and misconception is exiled for the good of the country. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I am here, as ever, with the archivist of anger, Kyle Glover. Hello! And this week, dear listener, we're staying in the 20th century, but starting out at least in the interwar period. And to guide us on this journey, we have author, biographer, and senior research fellow in modern British history at the University of Buckingham, Andrew Lowney. Andrew, welcome to History Rage. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Feeling angry? Uh, yes, I'm beginning to get worked up, but I'm sure it's uh, it's early days. Uh, I'm sure you'll let fly. I mean, basically everybody that has been on that said, oh, I'm actually quite calm, have been some of our most angry and ragey people yet. There's There's a lot of repression in our history community, I think. So you came to us by recommendation from our previous rager, Gavin Mortimer, who, for all things, was raging at the SAS, and we didn't think there was anything more controversial than that until tonight. But I'll let you get to the rage in a moment. I'm partway through your reading your latest book, which is what we're going to be discussing. But for our other listener, can you tell us a little bit about your background and career and how you ended up where you are? Yes. Well, I mean, my main job is I'm a literary agent. I, I actually sell books for other authors, and I've been doing that for almost 40 years. Um, I have a degree from Cambridge and then a doctorate from Edinburgh. Uh, and uh, I run something called the Biographers Club. Uh, and I've been writing biographies since 1995. So I started off writing about John Buchan. I then did a book on the Cambridge spy Guy Burgess, then a book on the Mountbatten's. Uh, and now I've sort of settled into royal history because uh, there's so many wonderful royal rogues uh, that it's good, good, good era to look at, and and just done this book, Trotty King, and my next book is on Prince Andrew. So maybe you'll have me back because uh, if I'm not angry, other people will be angry about it. Uh, and one of the things actually, I became terribly angry when I did my book on Matt Batten because uh, I wanted access to his diaries and letters, which had been bought with public monies to be seen by the public, uh, and they were closed. Uh, and I've just gone through a six-year legal campaign. 90% of them, 30, 99%, 30,000 pages have been released. 
but I'm furious I didn't get my costs. I've been left with a £350,000 bill. Oh. Um, and this is the sort of way that I suppose historians have been cheated of access to documents and to telling the story of the past mm. by a government, well, by academic institutions which seem to be kowtowing to the government uh, and by a government which is abusing state power. And I think it's a really important issue for all historians and academic freedom that we we challenge these things. And time and time again, I'm a, a trustee of the campaign Freedom of Information. We, we have the most ludicrous things being closed. It's a sort of culture of secrecy. And we see, you know, we see it in government. There's very little trust, transparency mm. there. And I think for historians, and I set up something called Historians for Freedom of Information, it's very important that, you know, we have a Public Records Act and this stuff is released uh, so historians can write accurately about the past. And it's at the moment we live in a banana republic. So I'm already getting quite worked up just about that. And I haven't got to Traitor King yet. How do any of our listeners, many of whom are historians, both amateur and professional, how how do they go about engaging with this campaign? Well, they can sign up to Historians for Freedom Information. They can uh, help with the crowdfunding we're doing. I'm very keen to uh, get the Nehru Edwina correspondence bought at the same time with public funds. Hmm released. They, Southampton only have to pay £100 to release the option and they've not chosen to do so. Uh, there's a, uh, I have a page on crowd justice under my name. They can Google me and contact me, um, I think by writing to MPs, by uh, going to organisations like the Royal Historical Society, Society of Authors, yeah. the Index on Censorship, um, the Royal Society of Literature, English Pen, I mean, there are a whole series of organizations which should be working together to put pressure on uh, governments to behave better uh, and indeed engaging with the media to cover these things. Freedom of information has gone backwards in the last few years. There have been claims, attempts to get people to, be, to, to charge, to pay for them. Uh, it's taking now a year for often before uh, things are actually answered and then another year before the Information Commissioner picks up on it. We have a problem with the Cabinet Office being the reg the boss of the regulator, so the regulator ICO doesn't really do much. In our case with Southampton, the ICO threatened the Cabinet Office in Southampton with contempt of court, but they didn't follow through with it. So I mean it's and we just need to get the media to focus on this and for people to care, because I think we we're seeing our civil liberties going uh, and people are just accepting it. Uh, and so it's not just historians, it's any concerned citizen should be very worried about this um, abuse of power and um, attempts to basically prevent us from getting access to archives and the failure of uh, people to follow the Public Records Act. And the worst offenders are people like the Cabinet Office and the Met and the Ministry of Justice who should be upholding the law. Yeah, so... We'll, what we'll do is we'll put all of the, the links and all of the instructions for that, that in with our show notes as well. And, and I think both myself and Carl, we'd very much like to get, uh, you know, as involved as we can with that campaign. So we definitely well, stay that's in touch. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much. Because I think it's welcome. very important. Well, whatever platform we can offer you for that, we will offer you for that. Thank you. So while I've got your blood pressure up then, <laughs> let's ride that rage wave as we, uh, uh, as we fly in, because now now that we've got you worked up <laughs> about the establishment, let's take it on. So, well, all my books are actually about establishment cover up, cover ups. I mean, my book on Guy Burgess is about that. The book about the Manbattens is the cover up of his paedophilia, and Trader King is exactly that—the way that they suppress the story of his treachery uh, to save the monarchy. So then, 
With that in mind then, will you please tell our listeners what the one thing you wish everybody would just stop believing? Well, it's not one thing, it's two things, or three things, actually. It's one, that the relationship between Wallace Simpson and uh, Edward VIII was a love match. It wasn't. She was trapped in a marriage she didn't want with a boy that who had threatened to commit suicide if she didn't marry him. So that's one. Two is this idea that he gave up the throne for the love of a woman. Uh, He was manoeuvred off the throne as a totally unsuitable king, and Wallace gave people the opportunity. And three, this idea that he's some innocent who's been uh, targeted by the Germans uh, as a pu- to be a puppet king uh, and is naive, but nothing else. And that's, of course, the line of people like the Philip Ziegler in the official biography. When it's perfectly clear, and it's been clear for years, the material's been in the archives, but people have chosen to ignore it, uh, that this man was an active intriguer with the Nazis. He was anti-Semitic. He was uh, thought Hitler, to the end of his day, was a good man. He believed in the Fuhrer Prinzip. And he was a traitor to this country. And if this had come out and hadn't been covered up, he should have been executed for treachery. And I think the other thing I'd throw in is that most people who write about royal biography are sycophants and snobs. They rely on uh, access to the royal household for their material. They're lazy about doing research. uh, And they basically go along with the curated story that the royal family puts out. And we have an extraordinary exemption in the Freedom of Information Act, Section 37, which says that any communications with the sovereign, and for that you can take any member of the royal family, yeah. um, they will basically, you can't write about it. And so this is why these Mountbatten diaries were censored. Even the most innocent things, went and had a cup of tea with Lilibet or right, print, arrived with Prince Philip, are censored. And yet we read the most extraordinary things in the papers every day about with people leaking about the royal family we have members of the royal family themselves leaking material think of princess diana and andrew morton Mm. and yet we can't see material from a hundred years ago or so uh which is serious stuff and i think you know this the royal family i'm well the more i write about the royal family the less of a monarchist i become but you know we have got if we are going to in a sense have any trust in in the monarchy there has to be a bit more openness about the way they operate you know, there are an awful lot of freeloaders there. There's an awful lot of cost in things like security. Uh, mm. And a lot of people who are abusing their position and not uh, doing their bit. And I think they let down the um, the ones who are working hard. So, I mean, those are four or five things on Traitor King. Um, and I, what I've shown is that this information has been in the public domain for years. The mm. captured German documents, which give chapter and verse on his treachery, were released in 1957. Winston Churchill threatening to court-martial him in 1940 has been in the Churchill papers for years. And so why hasn't anyone mentioned this? They must have come across it, and they've chosen not to write about it. And I think one of the other things that I I find uh, uh, extraordinary is that even though I've mounted this campaign as a historian for greater access to archives against the censorship of our history, the sort of things you think historians would support, very few historians have stood up to be counted with me. You know, I've been left isolated, uh, basically left to hang to hang dry on this. And, you know, I, uh, some of them have been very open. They say, well, we don't want to upset the establishment. We're hoping for a knighthood. We're hoping to get an official life. And that doesn't seem to me the purpose of historians. We should be writing the truth about the past, not mm. actually kowtowing to establishment and putting out, in a sense, of a, for a lobby system where we just reiterate the sort of rubbish that we're given. Yeah, we may as well just have press releases for that sort of thing, haven't we? Well, I think a lot of it is written on that basis. Well, 
coming then to the Duke of Windsor, I've as in, as I said when we were talking before we started recording, I'm I'm pretty much a newcomer to Edward VIII, and I very much what my knowledge is is ev- everything that is the opposite of what you've just said. So my you know my knowledge in inverted commas is pretty much the norm what you would expect. Now I've always associated him as being a monarch of extremely short reign, and at Best a Nazi pawn, at worst a Nazi sympathiser. But before he actually gets into the throne, I've never understood him as a Prince of Wales. So, as a man, before he ends up being Edward VIII, who is he? Well, he's very similar to Prince Harry. He's actually quite popular. He's quite charismatic. He believes he's going to be a moderniser. And there's very good spin. So there are all these stories about something must be done as he talks to the miners. The reality was that he was uh, very stupid, very lazy. He wanted to interfere in politics beyond his constitutional role. He was always very pro-German, indeed quite pro-Nazi from 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 the time the Nazis came to power. Uh, he spoke fluent German. He had close relations with uh, his German cousins, many of whom were Nazi generals. Uh, and those who knew him best were very worried about him coming to the throne. His father put him under MI5 surveillance. Good Lord. Only time it's happened to a member of the royal family. And one of the things that revealed was that he was having an affair with an Austrian princess, and Wallace was having an affair with a used car salesman called Guy Trundle. This was in 1935, and that when the romance was meant to be, you know, uh, going good he actually fathered an illegitimate child in 1935 with the sister of one of his previous mistresses. And uh, in fact, that son is still alive. And she continued to have affairs throughout their marriage, starting immediately after their marriage in 1937 with the American ambassador in Paris. So uh, the establishment were very concerned about him, which is why they maneuvered him off the throne. And they refused to send him red boxes. He was starved of anything that was in any way sensitive in terms of material. And they encouraged him to take up the most dangerous sports in the hope he would kill himself. <laughs> uh, and sadly, they didn't get to him through steeplechasing, but Wallace gave him their opportunity to, to push him off the throne. So you mentioned in the book that he's he's very up on improvements of the workers. He's talking to the miners and and everything like that. I mean, well, he's not. I mean, that's the line that's pushed. Well, that's the line that has no interest. He has no interest in the workers whatsoever. He's his only interest is in girls and nightclubs and playing golf. I mean, not dissimilar to Prince Andrew. So if he's not actually into the things that are sort of pushed forward as his main interests, what? actually were his beliefs, and what evidence do we have for those beliefs? Well, we know that he was very pro-Nazi, and we know this because, for example, as king in March 1936, he tried to downplay the remilitarization of the Rhineland by Hitler. We know that he told uh, Hitler and the various ambassadors, ambassadors in London that he would interfere in things. He did with the Anglo-German naval agreement of 1935. He was going way beyond his constitutional role. He was in close touch with his cousins, the Prince Philip of Hesse and the Duke of Saxe-Coburg, both of whom were Nazis. We know that Wallace was very close to Ribbentrop, possibly the German ambassador, possibly his lover, and that he had certainly targeted Wallace and the the, um, the king uh, with a German spy called Stephanie von Hollenhauer. We know that 
that he was say working very much with with german agents so the chateau where he got married in june 1937 was owned by a man called charles beddo who was a nazi agent on beddo's behalf he made a tour of germany in october 1937 where he saw ss uh, troops he went to concentration camps he had tea with hitler saw all the german nazi leaders uh, he was broadcasting to Hitler on the eve of the Second World War. He came back in January 1940 and tried to intrigue against Chamberlain. Uh, in the summer of 1940, he was uh, not just a pawn, as Paul said, but he was in and out of the German embassy in, in Lisbon, uh, negotiating with the Germans to come back as a puppet king. Even when he was basically uh, rumbled by Churchill and sent off the Bahamas as governor, he was communicating in code with the Germans saying, uh, I, I'm ready to come back if you want me. So I don't think there's any doubt. And we know this from, let's say, these captured German documents, which some of you may have noticed uh, were reported on the Crown. But these were basically documents that should have been destroyed at the end of the war, but were saved by a man called von Losch, buried outside Marburg and recovered and passed the Americans. And this gave chapter and verse of his intrigues, communications between the different ambassadors. We also know from private diaries of people like the King's private secretary, Tommy Lassels, an MI5 officer called Guy Little, and others, where we get again a day-by-day account of the stuff being found, uh, what it's saying. Uh, I've seen the papers in the Royal Archives, the confidential files of George VI, with him being briefed on all this and the lines to take, how they're going to play it down. Uh, and indeed, the way that they suppress this material from 1945 till 1957. And then when it is published, it's done in a very low key way with people just trying to discredit it. So the, the evidence is there. And we have postal censorship reports reporting his communications with people, his pro his pro-Nazi views. We have communications with, with Roosevelt showing how he tried to keep America out of the war by dealing with the isolationists. I mean, the, the, the man was a monster, uh, and he needs to be he needs to be exposed. So you mentioned in amongst all those that the the intriguing to come back if you'll have me and sit on the throne as a puppet king. So and you mentioned in the book as well. Now, actually, I've just got to the start of that chapter, so I do come to this as a complete newcomer. So, what can you tell us about that plot and how far it got and so forth? Well, it was called Operation Winnie. Uh, it was run by a man called Walter Schellenberg, who was a very bright young SS officer. Uh, he offered the king uh, millions of Swiss francs, the opportunity to sit out this time in Switzerland. And then when the moment came when the Germans invaded Britain, uh, he would be brought back, as says, as puppet king. Um, that we see from, for example, Franco's papers, uh, historical Karina Erbach found the material there that he exhorted the Germans to bomb Britain as the quickest way to subjugate them. Uh, and we know that when the negotiations with the Duke broke down at the end of July 1940, that was when Hitler began his bombing offensive on Britain. We know that through the summer of 1940, there were all sorts of peace feelers being put out uh, and the situation looked pretty dicey. So while Churchill was saying, we'll fight them on the beaches, he in fact was uh, open to some of these approaches. He didn't know how things were going to play. And it was only the fact that the British Expeditionary Force escaped at Dunkirk that saved the situation, that the German Operation Sea Line didn't take place, the BEF wasn't destroyed, there didn't need to be a peace deal, 
And uh, the Duke, in a sense, realized that and went off to the Bahamas. But as I say, even in the Bahamas, he was still in touch with the German agents. He'd been staying with a man called Ricardo Espirito de Santo, who was basically a, a banker for the Nazis. And, and even when he got to the Bahamas, one of his closest contacts there was a, a Swedish industrialist known as Goering's pal called mm-hmm. Axel Venegren, who belief was uh, with British and American intelligence, and I've seen the reports, was building deep uh, harbour um, deep harbour um, arrangements to refuel U-boats. Uh, and the Duke was warned not to have anything to do with him, but of course he continued to do so. So there's, the, you know, the, the evidence, and it's it, it, it's extraordinary how much evidence there is. Um, it's not speculation. Uh, my book has a thousand footnotes. Every statement is sourced and verified mm. uh, from reputable sources. So I think, you know, the case has been made. And what's very interesting is people in the past who were playing the, the Duke as pawn line before uh, are now coming round uh, to the fact that he was a traitor. Uh, we had a very good review in the TLS where they said I made the case. Uh, and even people who've appeared on there's a television program on Channel 4 about it, even people who had been sceptical beforehand uh, actually on that program came out uh, in support of, of what I'd been saying. So I think the whole thing has been recalibrated. Yeah. And uh, people, are, I think, have now accepted the situation. And we've got to remember how sensitive this is. This is the Queen's favorite uncle. You know, it's someone that she knew. Yeah. Uh, and these events are actually within someone's lifetime. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So during this time, he's you mentioned where he's going to the Bahamas, and we'll we'll come to the trouble that he causes in the Bahamas a little later on. But when, he, when he's over there, as I understand it as well, he spends half his time or more in the United States, which doesn't that create an awful lot of concerns about alliances and potentially America coming and joining in the war and. What sort of merry hell is he creating in the British war effort in the United States? Well, he's doing two things. One is uh, he's trying to engage with the isolationists to keep the Americans out of the war. Uh, and so there's a great, uh, great effort to keep him out before the November 1940 election when Roosevelt is re-elected. Uh, the situation changes after December 41 when America comes into the war. But then the concern is his very ostentatious, extravagant li- living. He travels with 80 pieces of luggage. They're stored in, in the hallways of hotels. He take, takes over whole floors of hotels at a time when people are suffering. Uh, and uh, he's just living this, this life where they borrow dresses and jewels and don't mm. return them. They, they, they don't uh, pay their bills. 
they um, make embarrassing statements. They uh, mix with the most unfortunate people, including the Vichy ambassador in, in the States, and continue to consort with people like Axel Wenegren, who are on blacklists. So, um, you know, he, he's, he's um, being disloyal to his brother. He's trying to upstage him. He's doing everything he can to undermine uh, the sort of British war effort. Uh, and partly this is driven by, I think, just personal animosity to his family and partly by his belief that the Nazis should be the winners. Uh, he had this great belief that the real threat was, was the, the Soviet Union and the Anglo-Saxon nations should work together. Mm. But he's a huge embarrassment, and reports come back about him using up petrol to make motor tours that he doesn't need to make. Uh, when his luggage is taken from the station at Washington to the embassy, he sends the bill to the embassy, and it requires a, a lorry to carry this stuff the short distance from the rail station to, 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 to the British embassy. So he has, he has a completely tin ear to what's going on. He complains when he's in the Bahamas about the mosquitoes and the uh, heat. And in fact, what, what's called the second abdication leaves the post early. He describes it as Elba, shows no great interest, which is why he goes to the state so much. He refuses when he arrives to, to live there because he doesn't like the decoration uh, and decamps to a house he's been lent for several months. Yeah, I read that. Didn't Wallace complain about the wallpaper during the Blitz? Exactly. Well, every spare money has been spent on Spitfire. She wants a new set of Laura Ashley curtains or whatever. <laughs> you know, they have no sense of, of, of what people are going through. Completely self-entitled and spoiled. I'm afraid there are very few redeeming uh, features. So this idea, this myth of this, you know, beautiful, well-dressed couple and this great love affair is absolute rubbish. Which brings us neatly into uh, into question yes. four. Yeah. So following on from that, this idea that they're the most romantic couple, the king who gave up his throne for love, the greatest romance in history, that's a myth as well, um, wouldn't you say? So how is it not the case? Well, it's a myth because, I mean, they were both having affairs throughout the, before they got married uh, and while they got married. Uh, in fact, I saw a reference in Dinah Cooper's diary to the fact that Wallace didn't even before they got before she got married to, to, to the Prince of Wales, didn't want to be alone in his company because he was so boring. And <laughs> she she kept saying to him, look, you know, I don't want to marry you. I'm bad for you. Uh, I really should just go away. She was very pleased to be the mistress. She got nice jewels and met nice people, but she didn't want to be tied to this guy. And, and, and he just emotionally blackmailed her and she, events overran them, and she was stuck with him. Uh, and she took out her resentment against him. She was frustrated and angry and bored. And so she was pretty terrible to him, sent him to bed often in tears, called him a mos buzz-off mosquito. And the more awful she was to him, the more he fell in love with her. Uh, he was a sort of rather abject, sado it was a sort of sadomastic relationship. Uh, and she had, to say, affairs all through the marriage, including with someone called Jimmy Donahue who was a bisexual, it was said that she'd given up a king for a queen. Um, Oof, uh, and people, you know, the Duke liked it because Jimmy Donahue was the heir to the Woolworth fortune, picked up a lot of the bills. But she had an affair with a, a, an actor called Russell Knight, you know, and those are the ones we just know about. I, I've heard reports that there were lots of other uh, um, lovers, but it's been very hard to, 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 to verify that. A lot of the stuff has just disappeared. But they were under surveillance, first of all, by the British, then by the FBI. There are stories of him being blackmailed by former lovers. 
we then also have the Portuguese bugging them and uh, putting them under surveillance when they're in Lisbon in the 19, in 1940. And then the French, when they're living in France in the 1950s, uh, are being watched by the French Secret Service. And I was able to get those reports from the archives at Vincennes. So it's it's a pretty sordid tale, and and it's it's not this great love affair. And if you look at some of the interviews with them, you know they both look rather pathetic characters. You know he's um, very nervous. He looks to her for constant reassurance. She's extremely bossy, and they had no inner life. They had no interest in music or books. They just gardened, golfed, and entertained, and and played with their investments and bought dresses or didn't buy dresses, borrowed dresses. And they sponged off everyone, stayed with people. They relied on people to take them on cruises and to, to put them up in hotels. They even, um, when they traveled across the Atlantic, because they spent half the year in France, half the year in America, they managed to get either free or heavily subsidized um, suites on the um, on the liners. They, they just never put their hands in their pocket for anyone. They treated their staff abominably. They didn't pay them the going rate. They didn't, um, they sacked them in a very perfunctory way. Mm. Uh, there was one man called Sidney who was a Bahamian, who, Bahamian who'd, who'd worked for them since their time there and the, during the war. And the 1960s, his wife died. He asked if he could go home early at five to take care of the young family. And she said, if you go at five, don't bother coming back. You know, they, they were the most appalling people and they just mixed with, with very superficial cafe society. Anyone, with any values or decency, just shunned them. Churchill, uh, who, who had got to, to realize what they were like, would refuse to go on a cruise with them after the war uh, or be on the same cruise because he was so disgusted by their behavior. I seem to recall in the book that fairly early on, the, he was staying or lodging with an, an Austrian couple. Yes, Kitty, Kitty Rothschild. That's yes, well, when, Kitty he, Rothschild when he first abdicated. Yeah, when he, you know, his first thing when he abdicated, no one quite knew what to do with him. He had to go abroad into exile. And the Rothschilds very kindly made a house available for him outside Vienna. Uh, but, you know, he abused their hospitality. He ran up a, a telephone bill of 800 pounds, which is equivalent to about 30,000 pounds now, and expected the Rothschilds to pay for it. They put on uh, activities for him for a Christmas party. He didn't bother turning up. Uh, they gave him lavish Christmas presents and he gave them a signed photo. When the lady eventually got fed up and left, he couldn't be bothered to get out of bed to say goodbye and say thank you. I mean, completely spoilt and, you know, like, a, I mean, just just appalling behavior uh, and was allowed to get away with it. You know, when Fruity Metcalf, his very loyal ADC, who'd served him for years and years, said goodnight to him one day in June 1940 when they were in Paris, see you in the morning, sir. He turned up the next morning to find the Duke, and the Duke said, see you in the morning. The Duke had disappeared without telling Fruity, taking the only car and all the petrol, leaving Fruity to meet, to face the Germans as they arrived in Paris. Uh, and that was the sort of loyalty he showed to people who stuck with him. You know, if you see, if you shown this complete lack of loyalty to people, do these then become a source of a lot of this information that we're, that we're now looking at? You know, how, how are they reacting? Do they go and blow this open, or do they trust in something like the Official Secrets Act? And... Well, the people are still pretty loyal to him. I think anyone who's around the royal family, uh, it, it does tend to be pretty discreet and loyal. Where I did get information was that a special branch protection officer was in fact reporting back to 
Scotland Yard, and those reports are, are in the National Archives. There were uh, all sorts of spies in the embassy writing things down. This man called David Eccles in Lisbon. He was being, say, put under surveillance by all these intelligence organizations who, whose records are now available. Um, but then we have the postal censorship reports, people writing to each other about their terrible experiences and those, those uh, communications being deceptive. We have people's diaries. Uh, such as Diana Cooper, uh, a great friend of, of uh, Wallace's, uh, who uh, who been married to, to a Spanish diplomat, uh, and, and her diaries in the American archives. So lots and lots of people have stories. The official archives tended to have been weeded, but the private diaries are there in private archives. Uh, I think one of my great gripes, um, another thing I'm getting angry about, is the fact that the, the, the British files have been dry cleaned. So the colonial office files are very thin, but fortunately, those, the mirror copies of those files in the Bahamas relating to his time there, and they're much fuller. And they reveal, for example, that he, uh, on the morning uh, uh, that there's a famous murder, the Oaks murder in July 1943 in the Bahamas, uh, the first thing that the Duke does is to move the commissioner of police to another island, basically get him off the case and bring in some bent coppers to investigate. Now, that's been covered up in the British archives, and it's only because I had access to the archives in Bahamas that I found this information. So one wonders how much else has been covered up, uh, which we just have, haven't found. Earlier, you'd mentioned that he was in a sort of a feud with his brother and the rest of the royal family, um, which goes far beyond his choice of his choice of wife. What can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, if, if you're asking about the feud with the family, I, I, I've been able to, to get access to his, his papers and indeed George VI's confidential file at the Royal Archives, first person to do so. And you get a sense of the bitterness of the family row. And it's not just about the fact that he's uh, this dereliction of duty, that he's basically landed Bertie in it, but also that he's tried to cheat them on the financial settlement. He'd been siphoning money off Dutchy um, income. Uh, and hadn't told people. He played hardball with his life interest in Balmoral uh, and Sandringham, threatening to to get American businessmen involved rather than Barcelona to Bertie. So there's there's the the way he's just dishonest with his family, the way that he's not done his duty. But I think one of the main things uh, is they they realise the element of his treachery. George VI is briefed on the the captured German documents on on the VE day. Balcony. He literally comes off uh, the balcony in May '45 to be briefed about his his brother's treachery, and it's clear, looking at the the files in the Royal Archives, that they're monitoring him very closely, right from the abdication in December '36. So that personal bitterness that's there is is very well justified. You know, they don't trust him, and they think he's he's not someone who he's basically a bit like he's toxic. And he needs to be frozen out. So we have a sort of playbook for Harry and Andrew and others way back in the 1940s. So, and I think they realised he wouldn't be a good king. Uh, you know, I don't think it was such a shock for for Bertie to be to step in, because he'd always said that he didn't really want the job, mm. which is why it's ironic he then did try and come back. And he clearly wasn't suitable. No one really wanted him there. So I don't think people had any illusions that that it probably wasn't going to work out. So his penchant for National Socialism aside, and I know that's a very big thing to kind of divorce from his character, but he's a horrible person in other ways. How lucky were we to have packed them off to the Bahamas? And uh, and what else were they getting up to? You know, po- post-war, post-Nazism. How much of a pain in the arse did they continue to be? 
well, they continue to 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 be these freeloaders. Uh, they continue to be embar- an embarrassment to the royal family. I mean, he mixed with um, some you know, collaborationists in, in France with right-wing businessmen in the States, including a man called Clint Murchison, who was involved with the Kennedy assassination. Uh, he continued to to make pronouncements about how wonderful Hitler was, and he was very anti-Semitic. So he continued to be an embarrassment to the royal family. They didn't want to give him any sort of job. He basically cocked up uh, his job as governor of the Bahamas. Uh, and though he lobbied quite hard to get a job as American ambassador, British ambassador to the States, no one wanted to give him that job. You know, the, the, the idea was basically that he would have to just go and do his own thing. I mean, he could have, for example, got involved with charitable organizations, anything like that. He, he just chose to lead this very selfish life of golf, gardening, and, uh, and entertainment. Um, you know, he gave nothing back to society. He just took from it. So there wasn't a single charity that could put Edward VIII or the Duke of Windsor uh, as its patron, as we would say, find with Princess Anne or Prince Charles or many other members of the royal family that are that, that are offering royal patronage to these organisations of worth. Nothing. I'm like not that at all. not aware of him being a patron of any charity. I mean, he certainly went to charity balls, uh, which he liked doing, uh, and that presumably helped raise funds. And he did occasionally um, give some money to charity. Uh, Wallace, in the, her time at the Bahamas, was involved with the Red Cross and, and cooking at a canteen on the British base there uh, and helping black children, particularly um, uh, children with syphilis. So, you know, she had some redeeming f- features. But no, he, his, his uh, charitable activities were very, very limited. And, you know, people I don't think really wanted to involve him. He he was a bit like Andrew. He was not necessarily a great asset to have uh, as someone, uh, as your figurehead. Because there was so much bad publicity about his extravagance and, and stupidity. Yeah, and I suppose this is feeding into a time when televisions are becoming more popular, newsreels are all over the place. It's the the idea of the monarchy and the royal family being being a close thing that you don't see all that often. Is is pretty much gone at this stage, isn't it? Well, I think there's still quite a lot of deference, and I think his reputation was protected. Um, you know, and indeed the fact that these myths have lasted as long as they have—it's 50 years since he died—shows how uh, the real story hasn't been told either by journalists or by um, historians. But yes, the American coverage was more critical. Uh, there were questions in the House of Commons about it, and of course within society, people knew what he was like. But in some ways, he was, he wasn't really a news story in Britain. Uh, he wasn't allowed to come back or had to get permission. And it, he was a sort of non-story. He wasn't invited to the Queen's wedding, uh, even though he was her uncle. He wasn't invited to the coronation on the grounds that there was no precedent for a king at his own, at, at someone else's coronation. Mm-hmm. And he was kept out of any sort of a, say, official role. So, the, the the line was, you know, basically go and curl up in the corner and let's hope that no one sort of remembers you. Exactly what they're going to do to Prince Andrew. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for that, Andrew. That's that's given me a remarkable number of things to uh, reconsider. Uh, and uh, I can continue it and I promise I will finish the book. But thank you very much for coming on. Did you uh, have you got that all off your chest now? I have. I feel much better now. Thank <laughs> you. So thank you for, uh, for 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 letting that uh, letting me rip. Brilliant. You are absolutely. You're an absolute star for that. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more about Andrew's work, then you can start by buying the excellent range of books that he's published so far. And we're going to have links to all of those in the History Rage bookshop. And you can follow him on Twitter at Andrew Lowney. And we will, of course, as we mentioned at the start, be putting up all the ways that you can engage with uh, Historians for Freedom of Information and the other campaigns uh, throughout as well. And Andrew Deekeep has posted on those as well. We'll assist wherever we can. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Wavell. I'm at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, that really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes three months in advance, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe to us at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, from both of us, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.